Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. I'm very pleased to have as my guest today Shane Free, the director of Hex Hollow, Witchcraft and Murder in Pennsylvania. It's a wonderful documentary, and I appreciate your time tremendously. Thank you for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me, Eric. I appreciate it. So where did you first hear about this story, and how did you come to make a film about it? Well, you know, it's a story that was kind of um, where I grew up in York, Pennsylvania. It's a story that really has permeated the society throughout the years. It's always kind of hung on and people have always talked about it um, from when it happened in 1928. So I just remember growing up and my dad would tell me this story because we lived about 25 minutes away from where it happened. So um, I just remember him telling me this story and uh, it was something to just really always kind of stuck in my mind. And I remember probably about in, in 2013 or so, I was thinking about the story again and, I'm, and I wanted to just watch a movie about it to kind of learn more. So I thought, well, I'm going to just watch a documentary on it. There must be one made. And as I was searching around, I, I couldn't find anything, um, anything about it other than a few books, which I've already read. So I thought, well, I guess in order to watch a documentary on this movie, I'm going to have to make one myself. So that's kind of how I really got into making it. it. It intrigued me how no one really touched it. And I thought it was something that needed to be kind of, you know, captured on film and, and just immortalized that way. So when you began your research, what were the, the primary sources you used to build your story? Uh, my main primary source was J. Ross McGinnis, who wrote kind of the definitive book on the subject. I thought if I can get him on board, um, I can do this. If I can't get him on board, it really wouldn't be worth trying to do because he's he's been giving speeches on this on this topic for like 40 years now, um, and he's in his uh, 80s now. So once I got him on board, I was able to then kind of connect to other people who were related to um, 
people who were involved in the case um, from that point forward. So I was able to talk to family members and descendants and as many people as I could find who were still alive that were um, connected to this case in some way. I mean, it happened in 1928. So obviously I was lacking people directly connected, but I had descendants and I had a few people who were directly connected. So it was, it was pretty helpful. Once I had him on board, I could kind of tell them that, look, he's going to do this with me. And that kind of gave some uh, legitimacy to the project. Can you talk a little bit about the Remeyer clan in Pennsylvania? What drew the family there? Yeah, so the Raymeyers, they came over from Germany and they uh, went in through Baltimore and they came up into Raymeyers Hollow, the area known as Raymeyers Hollow. Um, as far as like how they established themselves there, I mean, it was just it was just an area that they first came into that had a lot of land that they could work with because they were farmers. Um, so they kind of got in that way and developed and planted their family there. And when they planted their family there, all the other Raymeyers kind of uh, grew from that point. Let's talk about Nelson Raymeyer. Who was he? What was his background? And what did he do for a living? So Nelson Raymeyer was a farmer. Um, that was his primary source of income. He was uh, he, he grew all sorts of crops, and then he would basically take those crops up to the local farmer's market and sell them there. Kind of a recluse. He didn't really associate with many people. He had a wife and two kids. But on the side of being a farmer, he also dabbled in powwow. Powwow was a, a source of a, a form of folk medicine. Um, and it was basically, think of it as homeopathic medicine, what people do today. So it was a book that he had called The Long Lost Friend, which was kind of like a book that would tell him how to cure people of their ills or cure their livestock or help their crops grow. Kind of things you could do in the home that could potentially affect um, people in a positive way. So let's say you needed a wart removed on your hand. One of the things they would do was they would take a penny and spit on the penny and put the penny on the wart. And in a few days, the wart would disappear. Kind of strange, like um, things like that. Um, that people really believed in. And he was very versed in all these kind of things. So people would go to his home all hours of the day, all hours of the night to kind of ask for his help in, in this area. And he was doing it. was very um, innocent. He was really just trying to help people. And and that's, that's kind of what he's been known for. Um, so while he would farm, he would also kind of do these, this folk medicine called powwow. Some people in the community thought that he was a little strange, didn't they? They did. I think they thought he was a little strange simply because he was more of an introvert. And it's it's funny how that just because you're not you're not outgoing and you're not like in the community running around that people assume, oh, he must be a little strange. But really the fact that people thought he was a little strange was just because eh, he he decided to kind of stay in his home, not go out too much, only to the market to sell his goods. And that's kind of where that all came from. Other than that, there wasn't really much that would, that would point to him being that strange. Was it common for husbands and wives in this community to live separately? That struck me when watching your film, that Nelson Remeyer and his wife Alice had separate homes. That was a little different. No, it was not common. And it, it was also not common that they still had a pretty good relationship. But the fact was, she was just uncomfortable with you know, different people that she didn't necessarily know, all of them coming to the house at all hours of the day and night for him to do these, these this powwow on them. You know, they had two little girls. It was kind of awkward probably for her. So she thought, well, I have a fam- I have a house that I inherited. I'm just going to go over there. It's over the hill. 
I'll stay there with the girls. You can do your thing over there. And we'll try to kind of make this work still. Right, right. Can you give a, a physical description of Nelson Raymeyer? I ask this because his size plays an important role in the story. He was a big man. He was, uh, Nelson Raymeyer was probably at 6'4", um, husky. Um, he, in his younger days, he, he, didn't, he didn't have a beard in his younger days, but his older days, he kind of grew this big beard. Um, kind of think of like a, you know, the, the stereotypical look of a lumberjack. Kind of, that's what he looked like. Um, a big guy. Um, so he was kind of imposing in, in some ways. So that's another reason people probably thought, this guy's a little strange. I don't want to rub this guy the wrong way because he's a lot bigger than me. And, you know, I, I'm just unsure of this guy. So just think of a really big guy um, who, who was kind of imposing. So you mentioned that Nelson was a powwow practitioner. Can you explain more about what powwow is? It's Christian in origin, isn't it? Yeah, powwow is a Christian practice. So the the few powwow doctors who are still practicing today, and many still do, basically told me powwow is basically a Christian practice. So people who practice powwow are kind of you know an instrument for God to use to help cure people. So it, it's not the practice itself. It's it's more like you're learning to use yourself as an instrument to help other people. So um, one of the cool things that they taught me was the headache charm where you literally will pull a headache from someone's head. And they actually perform this in the movie where so if you have a headache, they'll, they'll kind of say the charm that's in the book. And while they're saying the charm, they will literally with their arm, they will be kind of pulling away from the forehead of the person um, and, and literally pulling the headache away and out of the person's head. And it's these kind of things. There's a lot of things with the hands and, and, and using the hands to kind of run over people's bodies, not touch them necessarily, but kind of above the bodies and, and things like that. So it's kind of like complex because there's so much to it. And we only touch a little bit of it in the movie, but I think we, we do it enough where you kind of get it. Um, another, another way powwow can work is you will literally write the charm down. You will put it on a piece of paper. That person will keep the piece of paper with them. And by keeping that piece of paper with them, it'll like, if it's a charm to keep you safe, that you, you will, you will be kept safe because you have this charm written down on a piece of paper that you keep on you. Um, so it's, it's things like that. You can drink charms in the movie. You see him write a charm down on a, with, um, washable, um, material. Um, in the, back in the day, they use like a, a berry and they would, crush up the berry and they would put it on the end of a stick and they would write the charm on something, wash it off into a cup and that person would drink the charm. So there's many ways a powwow can, you know, be used um, in order to affect someone who's ill. The part in your film, when you interviewed the guy who was a modern day powwow practitioner, it's just fascinating that this folk magic is still being practiced today. Yeah, it is. And, and even back in those days, a lot of people did it. Um, and there was like these two factions. There was like the people that were like, you know, you've got to get real medical attention for, for your ills. You can't be messing around with powwow. You could end up hurting your children. Let's say your children need true medical attention. You're going to a powwow guy. It's like, I think you guys should rely on, it's almost kind of like the vaccine thing now. Right. So <laughs> it's, it's these people who don't get their kids vaccinated or, or who do, it's that whole kind of, you have that in a sense today. Um, 
so it was weird, these two factions that really separated because a lot of people just believed in true medicine, but some people didn't believe in true medicine. And yeah, so some people still do that today. I don't think it's as prevalent as it is obviously today as it was back then, but a lot of people did it back then, which is another reason why it was it was strange that they gave Raymeyer such a hard time when he was really just one of many doing it. And you make a point in your film that while many of these powwow practices like carrying good luck charms are pretty far-fetched. He, he was also using natural medicine akin to modern-day supplements, which very likely had some curative effect. Yeah, and, and you also have to think of it this way. I think some of the effect was probably mental in those patients, right? Some of the patients probably thought, well, this is helping me, so then they felt better. It's that, it's that common, like, if you think you feel better, if you think you're being helped, you're going to feel better. So I think that's a lot of powwow. I think a lot of powwow is just positive thinking and and just kind of, look, a lot of these illnesses weren't that serious. I don't think people were going into him uh, for cancers and things like that. I think it was more smaller issues. So, you know, smaller issues tend to clear up on their own anyway. So my belief is, you know, he does his thing. And over a few days, people do get better, but they were probably going to get better anyway. But maybe they got better quicker because psychologically they thought this actually helped. So let's talk about the other major character that comes into the story, a man named John Blymeyer. Who was he and how did he meet Nelson Raymeyer? So John Blymeyer was kind of a down and out guy. He had a not a great life. Everything kind of was unraveling in his life. At one point, he did practice powwow as well. Um, there's a famous thing when, when he worked in a factory, a rabid dog came up to the factory, and Blymeyer walked up to this dog and calmed it down just by putting his hand his hand over the dog's head, and the, and the dog kind of calmed down and walked away, and people found that really amazing at the time. So he himself did dabble in powwow also. And at one point, uh, he actually did some work for Raymeyer. Not a lot of the work, but he did work on Raymeyer's farm briefly. I didn't really get into that in the documentary because there's not a lot of proof of that. But supposedly he did know Raymeyer um, from from a previous uh, working relationship. Um, so what was going on with Blymeyer was his, um, one of his uh, young daughters died on birth and his wife left him. He was having trouble getting work. And things were just spiraling kind of out of control. So he himself went to a noted powwow doctor uh, named Nellie Knoll, and she was kind of known as the Witch of Marietta. Marietta is another town kind of near where all this took place. And Nellie Knoll was an older lady, kind of of think of the old creepy lady that lives in the, the rundown kind of apartment building that kind of gives away powwow advice. Anyway, she basically went and did a powwow on him where she put a dollar bill in Blymeyer's hand, removed the dollar bill, and on the palm, in the palm of Blymeyer's hand appeared the face of a man. And she said the face of this man was Nelson Raymeyer, and he was the root of all your problems. He put some kind of curse on you. No one really knows why she picked out Nelson Raymeyer. Um, it, it was kind of a strange thing because that, once she pointed to uh, Nelson Raymeyer, that kind of just set Blymeyer off because Blymeyer just wasn't really, he was easily influenced. He wasn't hundred percent all there upstairs. Um, he probably had some mental issues that were undiagnosed. Um, nowadays he probably would have been diagnosed, but back then mental issues were something that they would just kind of throw you in a mental hospital and they wouldn't really look into it much further. So this isn't something that you say in your film, but it was something that I was thinking as I was watching it. 
I mean, my guess is that Nellie Knoll was targeting Nelson Raymeyer in an effort to eliminate her competition. You know, that's a very good theory. Why not? Sure, because she was she was one of the top dogs, but there were other people coming into play, and Raymeyer was a huge uh, someone who was really kind of gaining steam in the powwow area. So yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Maybe that's exactly what she was trying to do, knowing. Blymeyer was the type of guy that could maybe take it take it to the step she needed him to take it. So she was called the, the Witch of Marietta. But the powwow practitioner you interview in your film does really make a distinction between witchcraft and powwow practice. Is there a difference? There is a difference. I mean, really powwow in its core is used to help people. Um, there is really no witchcraft involved in powwow, but I guess the theory is once you know how to do these kind of charms and, and spells for good, you can flip it around and do them for bad. And that's kind of where witchcraft comes into play. Anytime you have the ability to help people, you know, using these kinds of charms and, and spells, the theory is that you also would then have the ability to hurt people as well. So Nellie Knoll tells John Blymeyer that the cause of his trouble is Nelson Raymeyer. And Blymeyer, from that point on, is pretty much a ticking time bomb, obsessed with lifting this hex, doing whatever it takes to make it gone. But he was a slightly built man, and he realized right away that he'd need some help in overpowering Nelson, wouldn't you say? Right. He, he thought he needed some help, and also I think he just wanted to get some other people involved. I think Blymeyer, in a way, was smarter than he appeared even though we know he was mentally ill i think he knew what he was doing so he thought well let me get a few other people involved it'll simply make it easier for me to get the things i need Nellie noel told him that he needs a lock of raymeyer's hair and his book of spells he needs to bear he needs to um bury the lock of hair six feet underground and burn the book of spells and that will get rid of the curse so yeah to involve a couple other people to help him kind of get these items would have been a lot easier. So that's kind of how he roped in the two other fellows that uh, that helped him, John Curry and John Blymer, and um, Wilbur Hess. Could you talk about these accomplices he enlists? Who were they and how did he meet them? Again, so Blymeyer preys on people that are that are weak, that are weak-minded or young. Curry was a young, young kid. He was only, I believe, 14 years old. And he comes from a family where he was beat by his father a lot. So him and his mother moved up to York, um, the area in which um, Blymeyer lived. He worked with Blymeyer in a factory, and that's how they met. So basically, Curry told Blymeyer his story, and Blymeyer's like, well, you, you, know, you seem to have a lot of the same things going on that I do. And I was told I was cursed by this Nelson Raymeyer character. Maybe he has some kind of hold on you as well. So you, you might want to help me out you know, getting these things that we need and maybe both our lives will improve. Um, so that was kind of how those two met. Uh, Wilbert Hess um, was part of the Hess family and they had um, a farm, Milton Hess with his father, Ida Hess, his grandmother. And these farms, the Ida Hess farm and the Milton Hess farm are right next to each other. And one farm was doing really badly and one farm was doing really well. Milton Hess farm was doing really poorly and the Ida Hess farm was doing really well. So, Milton just didn't understand why his farm was was performing performing so poorly. And back in those times, 
instead of blaming any anything, instead of blaming the weather or anything like that, you automatically go to some some other place. So he went to the place of maybe someone has cursed us, maybe someone has is, is wishing ill against us. Um, some thought maybe it was Ida Hess, um, you know, the relative that was causing problems so she could get all the crop. But um, they um, ran into Blymeyer, told the same story to him, and, and Blymeyer knew that the Hess family had a car which could help them get down to where Raymeyer was. So that's kind of how, why he roped um, him into it. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Grievous Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah, the show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. So on November 26th, 1928, Blymeyer went to the home of Alice Raymeyer, Nelson's wife. Can you talk about what happened during that first visit? Right. So they basically went out looking for Nelson Raymeyer. It was really two of them on that first night. It was Curry and Blymeyer. So they went over to Alice Raymeyer's house, who lived just over the hill from Nelson. Of course, she was living separately from him because of all the powwow. And she basically, they basically knocked on her door and said, look, we're looking for Nelson. She said, well, he's where he always is in his house, you know, over the hill. 
she pointed him to his home and they walked over to his house, knocked on the door. And Nelson, again, is a, is a friendly guy. He thought maybe they were there for powwowing and said, hey, come on in. We'll chat. So they, they were invited in. They came in and they were kind of scanning the room, kind of casing the scene when they realized, you know, this guy's even bigger than we thought. Curry was 14. Blymeyer, like you said, was a slight man. And he just thought, well, we're not going to be able to take him tonight. We're not going to be able to ask him for these items because he's probably going to be resistant. So let's just kind of case the area. Nelson said, why don't you stay the night? They stayed the night. Friendly. It was, everything was fine. They stayed over. But the next morning was when they went over to the uh, the Hess farm, Milton Hess's farm, and said, we're going to need one of your boys to come with us because we're going to need three men here. So that was when Milton has actually recruited his own son, Wilbert, to, to go along then the next evening to kind of do what they need to do and get the items they need to get. So they go back the next day on November 27th. Tell us what happens on this visit. So the three of them go down, knock on the door again, and Nelson answers, probably surprised they're back with now a third man. And basically, Blymeyer says, look, we left something from the previous night. And Nelson's like, well, I don't see anything you've left, but you feel free to look around. And as they're doing that, Blymeyer basically frustrated, turns to Nelson and is like, look, I need to lock your hair and I need your book of spells. And Nelson's like, well, what are you talking about? He's like, well, I know what you've done. I need to lock out your hair and, and your book of spells. Look, we can take care of this real easily and we can get this over with. Nelson just didn't really understand what this guy was doing. So he was resistant. And Curry picked up a chunk of wood from the fireplace and smacked uh, Nelson in the back of the head with it, dropped him to the ground, and a big fight ensued. And no one really knows exactly what went on inside that house. Even the court transcripts really vary. So it's kind of like all three of them kind of got in on this fight. We do know a rope was used and put around Nelson's neck at one point, and that rope was then tightened, and that was eventually essentially what killed him. Also, there was a crack. The, the wood that hit him on the head supposedly ruptured um, something in his brain to also assist in killing him. It was really kind of accidental. I don't think it was really ever intended to kill him. I thought I think they intended to just kind of knock him out, take the hair, find the book, and get out of there. But one thing led to another. The fight was probably around 60 seconds long. But once they realized we killed Nelson Raymeyer, we need to get rid of this evidence and we need to um, get out of here. So they tried to burn the body and hopefully burn the house down, but that didn't happen. That didn't work. So they they lit him on fire. They left, but the fire quickly went out. No one really knows why. There are some theories that, you know, Nelson's practice of powwow and and God helped do that, put out the flame. Another was he started to fall through the floor and there was a potato bin hanging in the basement below him that kind of held his body up and didn't allow the body to, to fall down through and light the basement on fire. So he was kind of, you know, the fire went out there on top. So there's, there's theories of why he didn't burn up, but um, yeah, I, I would love to have been a fly in the wall when that fight took place because, you know, there were, there were some that said, Oh, the fight lasted 30 minutes, 15 minutes, but really in the court transcripts, I think it's pretty clear when Wilbert Hess um, said the fight was about 60 seconds long. So who discovered his body and how did the investigation begin? Um, one of his neighbors heard uh, some of his animals, I believe some, a few horses, 
or kind of acting funny as if they haven't been fed or, or whatnot. And so they went and knocked on the door and didn't get an answer. And there's a couple of versions of who found him. One, one was the mailman found him, but I don't think there really would have been mail going at that time. Cause I believe it was Thanksgiving. Um, so I believe it was one of these neighbors went in and knocked on the door. And when he didn't answer, they opened the door and found him. And that's when they just called the police. And then the investigation begun. The investigation didn't take too long because since they went to his wife's house the night before, she was able to point to exactly, you know, who came to her house. They assumed, well, it must be these, these, these it must be Blymeyer must be involved. And they rounded these guys up pretty quickly. Uh, they didn't really try to run. They kind of thought what they did was what needed to be done. So even when Blymeyer was arrested, he said, well, yeah, he put a curse on me. What was I supposed to do? I mean, that was his mentality. He Being arrested and put in jail was not his biggest problem because his biggest problem to him was solved. I know you've mentioned this briefly already, but I'm intrigued about the fire and the theory behind how it went out. And you do go into it a bit in your film. Yeah, his great-grandson in the movie who I talked to, basically his theory was, or he said, and I don't know if this is true, I had trouble kind of understanding what he meant by this, but what happened was Nelson's one leg started to, uh, the, the, the floorboard started to burn away, and his one leg and his, the lower half of his body started to go through the floorboard. But under that floorboard was where Nelson would hang his uh, potato bin. So our, the great-grandson, Ricky Ebal, says he would have fallen through. The rest of his body kind of would have been pulled through the, the floorboard. But there's that potato bin, which, you know, potatoes have moisture in them. And, and he thought that the body kind of hung on top of that potato bin and there was enough kind of moisture around the potatoes and things like that. It was, it was damp in that basement that it outed the flame. Um, I'm still having trouble wrapping my head around that. I think maybe they simply just didn't put enough uh, kerosene oil on him. You know how hard it is to actually at times start a fire. I don't know if you've ever been camping. It's not, you don't just like throw a match and some wood and it lights on fire. It's like, you have to kind of build it. I think it was more just they didn't have enough um, fuel for that fire when they lit him up. The body is 75% water. I don't think you know it's easy to just burn a body. I think you need to have a lot of things to kind of help it along. So really, I just think they didn't have enough stuff there to – they just threw like a sheet on top of them. I think once that sheet burned through, um, there wasn't enough fuel there to keep the fire going. So there was no question about who killed Nelson Raymeyer. His wife, Alice, had directed John Blymeyer to her husband's house. And once Blymeyer was arrested, he freely confessed his involvement. Can you talk about his trial and how witchcraft was introduced by the attorneys? Yeah, um, I'll do my best. Uh, So the way witchcraft got uh, introduced into the trial, the judge didn't want any mention of witchcraft ever brought into this trial because... Obviously, witchcraft is something that's a very polarizing subject. They just wanted simply the evidence. They didn't want to get into, like, you know, what witchcraft can do and things like that. It just isn't really anything concrete there. So they were trying to keep it out of the trial. But what happened was, um, I believe it was Wilbur Hess's brother that got put on the stand and was telling the judge, well, the reason that Wilbert got sent down to help Blymeyer was because they thought 
uh, uh, Raymire was a witch. And from that point forward, the media really took hold of that and started plastering all over the, the newspapers that, you know, they, Raymire was a witch, he was practicing witchcraft, blah, 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 or this, what these, these, these fellows thought. And that's kind of how witchcraft got introduced. And, um, and it kind of went on from there. What was the, the verdict in Blymeyer's trial? The Blymeyer verdict was uh, guilty, um, life in prison um, was, was the initial uh, verdict, first degree murder. So he got sent to Eastern State Penitentiary and went on from there. So despite the fact that he got sympathy from the locals over his motivation, many in the community could relate to the fear of a curse, I'm sure. There was still no question that he was responsible for the murder and he needed to be punished. There was no question, just also based on his history. He spent time in a mental institution, which he escaped from. I mean, he, there was so much in his backstory that the point that just, you know, he wasn't right in the head. And they tried to correct it with, you know, sending him to the mental institution, but that just wasn't enough. So people like that, you kind of, even his own family, you know, in the movie, you'll see when he gets actually released early from prison, he doesn't spend his whole life there. Um, I can't remember off the top of my head how many years, I think it was like 24, 25 years. And from that point forward, when he got out, his family wanted nothing to do with him. They just... They didn't think he was right. They never really thought he was right. And they also thought he would do it again. And, um, he, you know, he, he just he was a guy that just didn't have a lot of friends, wrote people the wrong way. And I don't think there was any question that he needed to be punished for what he did. So let's talk for a moment about John Curry's trial. The jury was was pretty sympathetic to him because of his age. Is that fair to say? It, it was very fair to say. I think he was, you know, he was a young kid. He looked up, you know, back in those days, not so much today, but back in those days, you know, you, you respected your elders, you looked up to your elders, and you listened to them. So I think when a, an adult comes up to you and says, you know, this guy is doing this and I need your help, you're probably going to help that guy, especially if you worked with him and knew him. And he was just easily influenced. Um, and that influence is what led him into the situation and what led him to help uh, John Blymeyer. So, you know, I don't feel like he was 100% to blame. He, he, he was a young kid. I mean, you're 14 years old. I don't know if you remember when you were 14, but I feel like when I was 14, I listened to a lot of what an adult said to me. And he went along for the ride, and it was the uh, wrong ride to go on. And again, the purpose of these three men going into Nelson Raymeyer's house was not to murder him. Only one of the three struck the fatal blow. For Curry, it's almost about just being in the wrong place at the wrong time, right? Very much, very much like being in the wrong place at the wrong time. I mean, they went down there with the intent of, hey, we're just going to, you know, subdue this man, get his scissors out or a knife, cut off a lock of his hair, get that book of spells and get out of there. That's all it was. So how do things turn out for John Curry? What's the verdict and what happens to him? So he got first-degree murder as well and sentenced, um, I believe, to life in prison. But he also got out early. Again, none of these guys served their full term. Um, so when John Curry got out, he actually ended up working for Eisenhower uh, in the war because he was a really good uh, map maker and he was a good artist. So he did art artwork and things like that, and he actually helped draw up, uh, draw up uh, the plans for the uh, invasion uh, in Normandy on D-Day. 
So what about Wilbur Hess? Could you just briefly talk about him and his trial and how things fared for him? Yeah, so Wilbur Hess was the only um, person who had an attorney that they bought and paid for. The other two had, you know, public defenders. Um, Wilbur Hess, they actually were able to get an attorney. And this attorney was was really good. Um, he was a really well-known attorney, and he had it all lined up where he was going to frame it as if Wilbur Hess was kind of the sacrificial lamb for his family to be sent down to the hollow to help uh, relieve this family of his curse. So he went down not because he wanted to go down, but because his family picked him and sent him down there. So he didn't have a choice. Um, and that was really how he framed the argument um, in his trial. Wilbur Hess was just trying to help his family. What a great thing. What a great service he was doing for his family to help get his fa- their farm back on track and this and that. And I think there was a lot of sympathy toward him more than the, uh, more than even more than Curry that, um, that he was more of the sacrificial lamb. And because of that, he was the only one to get second degree murder and only sentenced to 10 years in prison. Although he ended up serving, he was the only one to serve his full term. He served the full 10 years and then um, got out after that. And what about John Blymeyer? Do you have any information on him regarding his later years? So the way Blymeyer um, lived out the remaining years of his life was he kind of worked as a janitor um, in a few different places. He obviously wasn't able to get any kind of real legitimate work after that fact. His family disowned him. Um, he was really never talked to his family much after that point. And when he died, they were unable to even get his, get his family to be pallbearers at his own funeral. They had to get people off the street to be pallbearers through the, for the funeral. And, uh, he was just buried without much fanfare at all. So he was kind of just a forgotten, uh, member of the Blymeyer family from that point forward. I want to touch on something briefly. Your film at one point shifts to an earlier murder of a girl named Gertrude Rudy. Why did you decide to include mention of her murder in your documentary? The murder of Gertrude Rudy was a, was a girl who was found dead on the railroad tracks. Um, I, I think it was a year before the Raymeyer murder took place. And they were unable to find anybody accountable for it. But many people believe it was John Blymeyer who actually committed that murder because he was seen kind of having a tryst with this girl off and on um, before she was murdered. And supposedly he also took the shotgun of his father um, that was never returned to him. And a shotgun was used to kill the girl, which he then put on the railroad tracks and hopefully a train would have run over her and kind of made her unrecognizable. But the train operator found the girl before that happened. And um, they could never though pin it on John Blymeyer, even though, some a lot of the evidence pointed to John Blymeyer. They weren't able to use that in the trial for Nelson Raymeyer, and they were never never ab- able to actually pin the murder onto Blymeyer. But many believe the year before the Raymeyer murder, um, he killed this girl Gertrude Rudy as well, which is also why I think it was a lot easier for him to commit murder with Nelson Raymeyer because he already did it once before. One of the things that I enjoyed about your movie was that you were able to talk to relatives of each of the the convicted murderers, and of Nelson Raymeyer, the victim. And one of the more interesting interviews took place in Raymeyer's house, which is still standing, furnished, and it appeared to be unchanged from the time of the murder. 
That's right. Yeah, we were able to get um, access to his house. It still stands today. It's not occupied at the moment, but um, Ricky Ebal, his great-grandson, owns the house, and he gave us um, – he was very helpful in helping us make the movie. And, yeah, we interviewed him on the porch of Nelson's house, actually. And we're even able to see some of the original burnt floorboards. The burnt floorboards are still there. He decided to keep it there and not not replace that. He has a piece of plexiglass over that area where Nelson literally went through the floor. So it was kind of a it's kind of a weird thing to see, knowing that it happened all those years ago, and it, it, it it's you can see it clear as day. What were some of the the difficulties and some of the joys you had making this documentary? The difficulties were just. I think getting enough material together in terms of things I could show other than people talking, because back in 1928, we just didn't have a lot of photographs. You didn't have any kind of like you would have now, any kind of news footage or things like that. And that was the most difficult thing was finding photographs of the people that were, you know, that were good enough to use in the movie. So I would, I would just scour eBay and I would scour all the historical sites and, and luckily, I was able to get enough, I think, with then the newspaper articles that I was able to find a lot of to kind of put everything together. So it wasn't strictly Talking Heads, even though it is a Talking Heads movie, which isn't a bad thing. But uh, I wanted to be able to kind of make it interesting visually as well as much as I could. Um, so that that was the tricky part. That there's, But there's so much more fun to it where I found a local artist who was actually a relative of Bly Meyer. Um, who was a, who was an artist, and he actually kind of drew up some frames for me to use to kind of um, visually tell parts of the story. So it's kind of neat that in the movie, when you see um, the fight, the representation of the fight done with these kind of still pictures that we kind of put some movement to, it was drawn by a relative of Bly Myers. Um, so that was really fun working with him and getting that all together and just talking to all the people like a Jeanette Harvey, who was the oldest person I talked to, who actually knew Nelson Riemeyer personally as a child. It was really neat to hear her stories and things like that. So it was it was really fun and a pleasure. I and mean, making a movie is always hard. And there's always parts where you're going to really have trouble getting through um, certain areas of the production. But overall, I think um, I did it at my own pace. I did it how I wanted to do it, and. Um, I think I'm really proud that I was able to kind of capture this particular story um, on film for the pe- not only the people in the community who appreciate it, um, but just for people who who just like true crime and like old stories like this who can now uh, learn about maybe a case they weren't really that familiar with. So were you able to have a, a local screening? And were you able to see some of the reactions from the family members you interviewed? Yes, we, we that was the first place we screened it was in York County, Pennsylvania, which is where the trial took place. And we screened it at an old movie theater there. We had three screenings in one day. Um, the screenings held about, you know, 300 people at a pop and we sold all of them out. And we also then sold DVDs at the screening. And the response was more than I could have ever hoped for. Um, it was really neat to see the people I interviewed watch the movie for the first time and their reactions. And just the reaction of people in the community were just really appreciative that I was honest about the story. I didn't really paint anyone in in, in a light that wasn't what it was. I, I just kind of let the story be the story and not try to inject any of my own personal thoughts into it because I wanted it to more be a documentation of what happened as opposed to um, a slant on what I think happened. So uh, people were really appreciative of that, both sides of the family. 
the, the, the two different families. And um, it was it was a thrill to just uh, show it to them first. So where can people watch your documentary? Um, the best place to go is uh, hexhollowmovie.com. Um, that's H-E-X-H-O-L-L-O-W movie.com. And from that point, right on the, on, the, on the front page will be the different links where you can view the film. So you can watch it on iTunes, on Amazon. You can purchase a physical DVD. Um, so there's various ways you can watch it. And um, Halloween, you know, you'll be able to watch it on iTunes for 99 cents. So you'll be able to rent it. So it's a great deal. Definitely pick it up and um, leave us a review. We would love to hear what people think about it, especially people who aren't familiar with the story. Anybody who's not familiar with it, we'd love to hear um, what, what they thought. So any, any kind of comments are appreciated. Shane Free, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. This has been the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobweb corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.